Greetings in the name of Jesus again this morning. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 for a message this morning. The title of the message is One Man, One Woman for Life. I think you know where we're going. I'm going to tell you that I am um, not feeling, and I think it's a good place, I'm not feeling qualified to preach this message. And some of the things I'm going to say this morning are things that I am working on. I'm speaking to myself this morning. In that title, you know, there is a thing in this world, or the, the for life concept, is not really part of the equation anymore. Okay? By and large, in this world that we live in, it, there's still a lot of people that believe in one man and one woman, although that is very much skewed. I was surprised when I just did a Google search on marriage and the definition. You know, it says, historically, I think the one definition was historically and in some jurisdictions, it is still one man and one woman. You see where that's going? But I would like to suggest that even in Christendom today, it is one man and one woman, but it is not necessarily always for life. Okay? We're going to try to look at this this morning, and I am going to ask you to stay with me. I have a lot of Scripture and a lot of things to cover this morning, and I'm not sure. I was thinking about it earlier. Maybe I need to split this into two messages, but I don't think this one's going to work next Sunday very well. So we're not going to try to do that, and I'm not scheduled to preach right away again. So we're going to try to get through this here. Let's read Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start... In here, I realize we should probably read verse 18, but we're going to just jump right into verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I would like to suggest this morning, not suggest, This is what the Word of God says 
This is what God intended when he intended marriage, when he instituted marriage right here before the fall. Marriage is the joining of a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant pattern on Christ's relationship with the church. Okay? That is what marriage is. And I'm going to at times this morning reference the relationship that we have. You know, all of us sitting here this morning, if we are blood-bought, if we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are a bride this morning. <coughs> and so I'm going to reference back and forth there at times. The other thing that I would like to say this morning is that marriage is the same for the unbeliever as well as for the believer. This is not something that just for believers it is one man and one woman for life. This is for the world over. Whether, you are, whether people are saved or not, it is one man, one woman for life. No exceptions. We're going to see that as we continue on. And I think, so what I'm trying to say there is let's not make a distinction that, oh, this is the Word of God, so it is meant for us who are believers this morning, but the unbeliever, well, you know, maybe there's a different thing for them. There's no, nothing different for them, whether they ever accept the Lord or not. And we also see here that marriage is one woman and one man, like I've already mentioned. The other thing is, is this word joined here, and I get this from John MacArthur, the word joined here has the idea of a, of, or that sense of a permanency. It is permanent. Divorce was never an option here. And the other thing is, is, this idea of one flesh, you know, we hear this thing, well, they shall be, they're now one flesh. And this morning I'm looking at a group of people where I am talking to a group here where there is a lot of married people here, and I don't see one flesh here. I see men over here and I see women over here. But it has the idea of, like the idea of the Trinity, okay? This I also got from John MacArthur. Or the idea of grapes, you have a whole cluster of grapes, or you have a cluster and many grapes in that one cluster. That is this one flesh idea. And where this message kind of originated from, and I'll be honest with you, I was kind of pushing this message off for a while, just maybe someday. Maybe I can just not go there. Matthew 5, where we have been in so many times, I'm just going to read verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. This is kind of where I took this and am bringing this message to you. As we read these verses, as I was growing up or in my, yes, even teenage years, 
there was always this talk about this exception clause. And I know I might be opening myself up for some stuff here. But I think we're going to look at this a little bit more, and I just want you to stay with me here. But before we do that, what? We're going to read Deuteronomy, and you can turn there, Deuteronomy 24. And we need to read this, and then we're going to go back to Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. But Deuteronomy 24. We're going to read the first four verses. When a man hath taken a wife, and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and sendeth her out of, her, out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. This phrase in here, in verse 1, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, it's hard to know exactly what that is, what it, that is saying, what that means, and I was trying to, I was in my studies, what does this mean? It can't mean adultery, and it can't mean fornication, or, or maybe we should say premarital sex, because those two were punishable by death in the law. So it's a little hard to know what is this, what that phrase actually means. He finds some uncleanness in his wife, he writes her bill of divorcement, gives it to her, and she's free to go. And she goes and marries someone else. She's allowed to do that, according to this. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 19. And the reason I read Deuteronomy is because we needed to read that to get the context of these next two scripture, the next two passages that we're going to look at. Matthew 19, we're going to jump in in verse 3. And read to verse 9. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Turn over to Matthew, Mark chapter 10. And we're going to read the parallel passage to this, but Mark chapter 10 has a few other things in it that Matthew doesn't have here. Mark chapter 10, let's just begin reading in verse 2. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful 
for a man to put away his wife, tempting him. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband, her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And then I'm just going to read one verse from Luke, 8, Luke 16. And this is uh, kind of a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 18 in Luke 16. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. So, from the passages here in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, the reference is made back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, what do we do? Moses said that we could give her a bill of divorcement. What did Jesus say? He said, because of the hardness of your heart, that was there. But before that, well, in Mark chapter, or in Mark here, he says, first of all, for the hardness of your heart. In Matthew, he says, what? But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, Pharisees, in other words, people, way back, before the fall, marriage was instituted as one man and one woman for life. Divorce was not an option. But because of your hardness and because of you not wanting to serve me, Moses permitted divorce. He wrote that. It was permitted. It was not to put away and say it's okay to divorce. A few things that I get from these passages we just read, and I already made reference to them. The first one is that Jesus didn't get caught up with the Deuteronomy passage. He didn't get caught up in the Pharisees' trap here. In other words, he went right beyond that, and he didn't even worry about this Deuteronomy thing right away. He went back to the beginning. And then he says that it was because of the hardness of your heart, as we already referenced. The, first, the third thing is, what God has put together, let not man undo. In other words, God said it back at the beginning, before the fall, when he created woman, and that is how it is still today. And don't undo it. And the fourth thing that I see here is that remarriage is wrong and is not permitted. Okay? But too many times with this exception clause, they say, except it be for fornication, and then they try to make that exception clause also mean that you can get remarried, and that is not how it is. The exception clause is put in there, except it be for fornication. It doesn't have anything to do with remarrying. 
Never does it say that it is right to remarry unless a spouse dies, okay? Then you are free to remarry, and that you can get, I think it's in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what about this thing of the, you know, that, that exception clause is the one that so many times we want to, well, maybe, maybe we can do something about this. Turn to Malachi chapter 2. And we're still on this subject of divorce. And what does God think of it? Malachi chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 11 and read to verse 16. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. What does God think of divorce? I hate it. Plain and simple. This was the Old Testament, by the way. And God says, I hate divorce. And we already saw that in the passages we read there in Matthew. <clears throat> each year, and I'm not sure when this was written, but each year there are over 400,000 divorces in America. This leaves about 500 children in divided homes. Divorce is not the answer. It is possible to have a happy and successful marriage. And I got that from a collection of quotes. I believe that's where that came from. 400,000 divorces in America. And then, I also read, and this is now just this is nothing, this is also a statistic that between 40 and 50% of first marriages end in divorce. 40 and 50%. Harold Martin says it this way, the husband and wife are no longer two persons, but one person in the marriage. God decreed it that way at the time of creation. And since that is true, divorce is not only unnatural, it is rebellion against God. In God's plan, marriage is to be permanent. It, it, it is to last until the death of one of the spouses, 
I may have misprinted something here. To destroy marriage is to destroy a creation of the true and living God. And you might say, well, so now why are you really getting all into this thing on divorce? Well, there's some things that I would like to bring out just in a little bit here on this. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul also referenced that divorce is wrong. And if God hates divorce, then why do we have to take issue and try to work around it and, you know, the, the, all the thing was, and I'm not saying we do, but why in Christendom is there this thing to try to work around it and to try to reason around it? And back to Matthew chapter 5, where it says, except it be for fornication, I'm just going to share some things, and some of this comes from Harold Martin. And some of it may be some of my own opinion. We are not given the option to remarry other than if a spouse dies. So in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, those are the only two places it says this thing of except it be for fornication. We cannot find anything about remarrying because of divorce. We could look at this a few different ways. If this is talking about fornication, which would be sexual activity before marriage, then there would be grounds for a divorce looking at it the way, looking at it that way would be looking at how the Jews, how the Jews practiced it with the betrothal. So you had, and this is Harold Martin from his book, you had three different things where there was a promise to marry, and then there was that betrothal um, period where it could last up to a year, and then it was the consummation of the marriage, the actual marriage that took place. In that betrothal area, in the Jewish and in the Jewish um, way of doing things, that was as good as marrying. Okay, even though a marriage hadn't taken place yet. So looking at it, and I believe um, Harold had it that this is the betrothal way of looking at this. Saving for the cause of fornication, then in other words, if you look at it this way, then you could put that, that lady away and divorce her. Basically, they would have to give her a writing of divorcement because it was as good as married. And one of the examples that was brought out was with Jesus and Mary. Okay? Jo or not Jesus and Mary. Joseph and Mary. Joseph could have, he had grounds to put Mary away because found out that she is expecting a child and it's not with him what is going on here. Looking at it this way means that there is never a time when a marriage is to be broken. Never. If you're going to look at it that way. And I'm not sure if we want to then say, so what about if there is something going on after marriage and you have adultery or you have fornication or whatever going on after marriage, what are we to do there? This is what I'm going to say on it. God hates divorce. And I don't think that we should just say, oh, so someone, maybe a husband, is committing adultery. That is sin, so now the wife has a right to divorce him. I don't think so. 
Maybe there is grounds at times, at times, for a separation in that relationship. But there is never grounds for a divorce and to allow the party that is free from the sin to go and remarry. That is never an option. And divorce, I believe, is not an option either. Maybe some time for separation. But I believe in all of this, we need to seek God. And we need to pray about it. And we can't just the moment that we find out that, oh, my husband was looking at pornography and that's what he's been doing. So now I have grounds to divorce him. No. What is Jesus doing with us right now? We are his bride. The moment that one of us sins, what does he do with us? You're done. It's over with. I am cutting you off and divorcing you. He would have grounds to do it. He doesn't. He doesn't. He takes us back. He woos us. He tries to win us back. That's what we need to do in a marriage. I found this from just a collection of quotes. I found this, as a, and this is a pastor over, it seems like it was a pastor over in Berlin. I'm not sure how long ago it was. <clears throat> he says this. It was at the beginning of the 20th century, and his name is Otto. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. The most common form, and he found that the most common form of pastoral counseling in the West End of Berlin was to assist people with their, when their marriages had come to grief. At first I was inclined to regard dissolution as the only course where a marriage had long ceased to be a marriage, though I never actually counseled divorce. But with experience, I became firmer and more decided as the years went by. Finally, I said this, Divorce, except for adultery, is forbidden by our Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone pursuing, anyone purposing to seek divorce is guilty before God. If the other party has committed adultery, then the duty of love is to forgive. The marriage vow is binding beyond all estrangement. Separation, yes, if nothing else works. Divorce, no. As a pastor, I cannot say more on the basis of God's word. Did you catch it? Separation, yes, if nothing else works. Divorce, absolutely not. That's what he is saying, and I feel the same way. Because, and notice what he said, and he said it better than what I was trying to say it. He said, if the other party has committed adultery, then the duty of love is to forgive. The party that has not committed adultery, their duty is to forgive the other in a marriage relationship. I hope you're with me, and I hope you're, this is all making sense, and I'm not saying something that you're thinking, where is, this, where is he going? But I say all of that on divorce because there's a concern that I have in the Anabaptist circles that, oh, divorce is wrong. No, we will not divorce. That is wrong. But yet I think there is many, many marriages 
that are only coexisting. And it's just about as good as a divorce. Now, I would like to just get off the negative a little bit and go to some more positive things. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Now what we want to do is we want to look at how can we have a marriage that pleases our Lord Jesus and that does not have to be one that is just coexisting. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as a church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but, it, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as, his, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Colossians 3, 18 and 19 read like this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. <clears throat> so we start out, and I read verse 21 for a reason. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Because we want to Sometimes it's the, you jump into verse 22 and you just right away, wives, submit yourselves. You have to go back to verse 23 because it says submitting yourselves one to another. And maybe this is talking in the relationship, in, in a church relationship. But I'm going to say this. I believe it is also talking in the husband and wife relationship. We need to submit to one another in the husband and wife relationship. Now, this idea of submission, and I know this is one of those things where everybody's like, oh, here we go again. They're going to just get hard on the women. It does not mean that she can never disagree with her husband or that she just has to meekly follow him. You know, okay, it's my Christian duty just to follow my husband. And, you know, no. I believe this is where we so easily fail in this thing as husbands because we look at this verse... And we say, well, we're to be the Lord here. We're going to look at that here in just a little bit. So we're called to be the Lord in the headship order. And she needs to submit to me. That's just, that's how it is. And I can do whatever I want to do. And she, I can ask her to do anything. I can ask anything of her. And she's going to have to do it because this is the idea of submitting. 
I would like to suggest that we're going to have to look at the rest of this chapter, and we're going to do that, but I would like to just read a little bit from a sermon that I read from dreadlock to wedlock, and this is just some of it. A word about respect. The idea of submission speaks more of respecting one's husband than it does of becoming his servant. Women could learn a valuable lesson here. While women thrive on attention, time, and affection, a man loves nothing more than having his ego stroked. When a woman makes a man feel that he is absolutely essential to her existence, she has made him feel respected and important. So when you as women make it absolutely essential to your man, that you make him feel that he is absolutely essential to your existence, now you have caused him to feel respected and important, and in turn, he's going to treat you the way we are called as husbands to treat. See, it's going to go both ways here. You know, men, they like to appear macho, but actually they are little boys who need reassurance all the time. We like to think we are something, men, but we need our wives to speak into our lives. Dr. E.V. Hill, a dynamic black minister who serves as senior pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, lost his wife Jane to cancer a few years ago. At her funeral, Dr. Hill described some of the ways she made him a better man. As a struggling young preacher, E.V. had trouble earning a living. E.V. came home one night and found the house dark. When he opened the door, he saw that Jane had prepared a candlelight dinner for two. He thought that was a great idea and went into the bathroom to wash his hands. He tried unsuccessfully to turn on the light. Then he felt his way into the bedroom and flipped another switch. Darkness prevailed. The young pastor went back to the dining room and asked Jane why the electricity was off. She began to cry. You work so hard and we're trying, said Jane, but it's pretty rough. I didn't have enough money to pay the light bill. I didn't want you to know about it, so I thought we would just eat by candlelight. Dr. Hill described his wife's words with intense emotion. She could have said, I've never been in this situation before. I was reared in the home of Dr. Caruthers, Caruthers and we never had our lights cut off. She could have broken my spirit. She could have ruined me. She could have demoralized me. But instead she said, Somehow or another, we'll get these lights back on, but tonight, let's eat by candlelight. Let's look at the husband's role here, is to love his wife. This is not some kind of gushy, warm, fuzzy feeling. Okay, husbands? This is a godly love. It's not some feeling of love and, oh, I'm so in love with her. Because I'm telling you, if you just fall in love with her, you can fall out of love with her again. Okay? If that's all it is. I think we can save ourselves a lot of heartache. And if it's just that superficial love... We're headed for coexistence. 
The love that's being talked about here is that agape love that Christ had when he that Christ had for us when he came to this earth to fulfill his father's plan. It is seeking the best for our wife and wanting her to succeed in life. It is treating her like a queen instead of a slave. In fact, Paul goes on to say, we are to love them as we love our own bodies. How do we do that, men? We don't let our bodies break down and treat them with disdain, do we? How are we treating our wives? Perhaps husbands need this reminder to be tender and loving as much or more than wives need the, re- need the reminder not to usurp authority over their husbands. Assuming absolute authority will only embitter one's wife, not endear her. So in a maturing marriage, the husband exercises compassionate care and his wife responds in willing submission to his loving leadership. If our wife does not respect us and is taking the role of leader, let's not just blame it on her because of her strong makeup or her her strong personality, but let's check ourselves and see if we are loving her the way Christ loves the church. Too many times we blame the wife when in reality we are the ones to blame. I'm not saying that women don't have, I, I don't want to just, you know, say that maybe women don't struggle with wanting to be in control and come out from underneath that headship order. That is a very real thing. But men, let's check ourselves. Let's see, are we loving as Christ loved the church? Just turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. I don't think for the sake of time we're going to read all of this. But here again we have this idea of submission. And here it is actually also bringing out the idea that if a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, that by her chaste conversation she may win his heart to Christ. But it, this is, here again we see this idea of submission. And what it's to be like. And it is to be that meek and a quiet spirit, the hidden man of the heart. And what I see here is this is not a woman who is loud and brash. She's not out trying to adorn herself with jewelry or certain clothes or playing with her hair. We've all seen women like this. And let's not just think that, oh, this is women out in the world. This can come right into our, into our church, right into our circles. It's once again this meek and quiet spirit. It's also not just someone who walks around and says, yes, sir, yes, Lord, and all of that as Sarah did. Sarah is brought out here as an example. But I, if I look at Sarah's life, I'm not so sure that Sarah always just said, yes, Lord. What did she do with Hagar? And I realized that was a mistake and that was wrong. But if I take that, I take it to see that Sarah was also speaking into Abraham's life. Even though that was sin. And that was wrong. And Abraham should not have taken that. But she didn't just walk around meekly and say, okay, whatever you say, and I'll do this, and you do that. No, she stood up and said some things sometimes. And I think we need to let our wives speak into our lives. Remember, they have an intuition that we do not have. And we do well to listen to it. They see things that we don't see. And then the idea of love here in verse 7 for us as husbands is brought out again. 
And it says uh, um, this idea of, or this phrase of, as unto the weaker vessel, it's not saying that she is some weakling in her mind or in her intellect. She isn't. Our wives sometimes are stronger than we as men are in the intellect and in their, and in their thinking, and they think deeper into things. They're emotional. They're more emotional than what we are. So they, they think and see things that we don't see. This is referring more to the weaker physically and also maybe emotionally being weaker. However, notice that she is the heir of the grace of God with us. She is joint heirs with you and I, men, or with us, men. And just realize what it says at the end. If we aren't considerate of them, then our prayers will not be answered. So, we look at all of this, and I just have some practical points yet that I would like to go down over that we can maybe put into practice so that we don't come to the area of where we're just coexisting. You know, there's a song that I've listened to already, and it has the idea of a husband and wife. I don't know, were they out on the porch someplace and they were watching the last one leave, the last one of the children leave. And the next morning, and this was, they were older now, the next morning they woke up and they looked at each other and they said, who are you? They didn't know each other. How do we get, how do we not get to that place? Number one, communicate. And in this list, this is where I'm still working. Communicate. We must communicate about things, anything and everything. Number two, admit your wrongs. It's nothing wrong, men, to say that I am wrong and I did wrong. Admit it. It's very hard for men to do that at times. Number three, when we admit our wrongs, when she admits her wrongs, men, forgive her. Forgive him. Number four, pray together. Number five, have a family altar. Establish that when you're first married. Number six kind of goes back to number two, but confess your struggles or sin. If you're struggling with something, confess it. Share with her and vice versa. If there's sin and you're into something, men, that you should not be into, confess it with her. It's going to be hard. It might it might be rough for a long time, but do it. Make decisions together is number seven. Big decisions, small decisions, whatever it is. I, I've already heard of dollar amounts where couples have anything over this dollar amount, and it's, fairly, it's, it's not very high at times. They talk about it before they spend the money. Make decisions together. Share your visions, the dreams you have, 
You know, they didn't just stop when you got married. Share them. That's number eight. Number nine is show affection. That means in public, hold her hand. Don't be ashamed of her. Hold her hand. When you leave the church house, hold her hand to the vehicle. Put your arm around her. You can do those things in public. I'm not asking for more than that or saying more than that. But in your children, in the home, show affection. It's okay to give her a goodbye kiss in the morning and a hug in front of the children. That's okay. It shows security to your children. Number 10, raise your children together. This one kind of goes back to the idea of making decisions together or communicating, but raise them together. Be on the same page in that. And number 11, continue dating. Continue pursuing your wife, men. You know, and when you do that, do it just the two of you by yourselves. Okay? Don't take the children along. Find someone else to take care of them for the evening. It's okay. You can do other stuff with the children. And it doesn't have to be going out for an, a meal all the time. It can be as simple as if you have young children, putting, to, putting them to bed early and spending the evening together. It can be as simple as putting the children someplace or getting somebody to watch them and going for a walk. You know, it's, you can look at me and say, well, you kind of have it easy. Your children can take care of themselves. There was a time when they couldn't. To have a happy marriage, both partners must work at it. There must be cooperation. With both partners cooperating and God's help, the marriage will be a success. Shall we bow our heads, for, or shall we rise for a closing prayer and benediction? Father, we come to you thanking you and praising you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you that as we look at all of this, we can see the correlation between us as your bride and you as our husband, and someday there will be that marriage supper of the Lamb. And I pray that as we work on our marriages, Lord, and continue to work on them, that we would realize that you have instituted it and this is your design, this is your plan, and we would walk in it together with you. Thank you for this congregation, I pray. And now for the benediction. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You are dismissed.